We live in a very diverse nation in the United States, and our college campuses can be equally, sometimes even more diverse than the city or neighborhood we grew up in. Diversity may be on campus, but that doesn't mean every voice is heard at the table. Voices from the Margins is a podcast designed to elevate the voices of women and students of color from college campuses around the United States. Together, we hope to raise awareness on unknown issues, invite people to action, and advocate for the unheard. Join us on Voices from the Margins. Well, on this edition of Voices from the Margins, we wanted to sit down and have a conversation with three tremendous and excellent, outstanding Black women who serve on staff with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship uh, in conjunction with what's happening right now on Twitter, this hashtag, Black Women at Work. And so I want to invite these staff to introduce themselves. Let's start with Jazzy. Jazzy, uh, tell us about yourself and where you're on staff. Uh, I'm Jazzy. I am on staff in Chicago, the director of the Chicago Urban Program. I'm a woman from Texas and uh, went to school um, right north of Chicago, Northwestern, and have been in Chicago ever since. Wow, excellent, excellent, excellent. Brandy, what about you? Yeah, my name is Brandy. I've been on staff for about five years, and in contrast to Jazzy living in Chicago, I live in the Pacific Northwest in Oregon. Uh, I've been on staff at the University of Oregon for the last three years, uh, and I'm learning what it means to be Black in the Northwest. (laughs) Sounds fun. Wonderful. Uh, and finally, for someone who our listeners may not be aware of, but you've seen her fingerprint since day one, she's one of our editors for the podcast, and so this is her first time joining us. Jerrica, tell everybody about yourself. So hey, you guys, my name is Jerrica. I am on staff with InnoVarsity. I've been working with students in the Chicago area for the last four to five years, but now I work with ministry and digital spaces, helping students connect to Jesus online. So yeah, I am from Georgia, and I now live in Chicago with my husband and my baby. And that is all. (laughs) (laughs) And I love editing this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Uh, I want to ask each of you one question, and then we've got some ground to cover. So, uh, but I am curious. It's one question that we ask all of our all of our um, guests uh, at the beginning. So, the podcast is called Voices from the Margins. When did you become aware that you had a marginalized voice or a voice that was uh, essentially from the margins, from mainstream society? Jazzy, how about you? <laughs> well, you know, Sean, I was born, uh, and I was born in Texas. Uh, to two black parents and so I think that's a very big start Um, but part of it was growing up in uh, North Texas and realizing that I was like hyper visible and invisible at the same time and so what actually helped me to recognize this about my voice though was not just feeling those things I didn't have language for that and it wasn't until um, I actually had uh, a black counselor call this like assembly of black students actually when I was in eighth grade and uh, he brought a handful of us together and really spoke truth into us of like yeah you are uh, very much the minority in the school but that doesn't mean that that's what your voices have to reflect right Um, and that you all will achieve great things here and don't let anyone tell you that otherwise and then he met with each of us individually and said Jasmine I pulled your file Jasmine is my real name Um, And he said, I've pulled your file, I've read all these things about you, I see the grades and all that, and I 
know that you will make history. I know that you are going to do great things. And so it was actually through that of seeing that I've been feeling all of this, these things, this deviation from the norm and feeling on the margins in that way and someone inspiring me and affirming me that I need to use that voice and I recognize that it actually was marginal and was important for me to learn to own and to live into. Brandy, what about you? Sure. So again, in contrast to Jazzy, uh, growing up in a black family, I grew up in a white family in Oregon. And so I didn't know that a black voice was a thing. Um, and it wasn't until I started doing things with Christianity, I didn't grow up in a Christian family, but it wasn't until then uh, that I started to realize that even, that people would ask me, what do black people think about this thing? Um, and people by very nature having to ask the question, what do black people think meant that no one was hearing black voices in spaces. Um, but what became really confusing was that as I started to explore what I as a black person or what black people thought of things, uh, when I started to share those things, I found that particularly uh, evangelical Christians were less willing to listen um, because it deviated from general ideas of what we believe to be truth or how you come to truth. Um, so things like black musical traditions or preaching styles uh, were not things that people wanted to hear about because they deviated from what we experienced on a Sunday morning. Um, and so I think I found that the marginalization of my voice as a black woman happened the more that I deviated from, from those experiences. Jerrica, what about you? So I grew up in a fairly black middle-class, like, metropolis um, in Georgia. So I went to a black Baptist church, went to a black private school, had a black doctor, had a black nanny, had a black, I had all black everything. Like, I wasn't really exposed to white culture until I moved into elementary school. When my parents divorced and my mother moved us away from our black middle class community into a more rural town, which was highly segregated. Um, so I lived, I went from living on a house on the hill in a black middle class neighborhood to living on Strawberry Hill, which is where mostly black, poor and post sharecropping families lived in rural Georgia. And I didn't realize I had a marginal voice until one, I started meeting um, started going to school with white children and realizing, oh, they lived in these neighborhoods and we live over here. Um, this is their experience. So this is my experience. So my, my grandparents were sharecroppers. Oh, their grandparents went to college. Um, so not only experiencing marginality with white students, but also a lot of my black peers would say, oh, Jerica, you talk funny. Like, why do you talk like that? So I think that kind of gave me a gaze for, oh, this is how I'm perceived by my white classmates. And this is how I'm per perceived by my black classmates. Um, and I felt very much in the middle. Uh, I had a huge love for black history. Um, um, my grandparents would take me on trips to see plantations where our, where our ancestors were from. So I had a huge sense of my black identity, my black history, but I oftentimes felt marginalized in my middle school and in, even into my high school experiences, the people just not being able to figure me out. Wow, thank all three of you for sharing that. I know that's, uh, it takes a lot both to kind of reflect on your journey, but then also to share, I think with that level of vulnerability. Um, so thank you for that. So I think kind of to shift gears a little bit, we've been looking at really what's been happening on social media right now and this trend of Black women at work. U.S. Representative Maxine Waters and April Ryan, who at the time worked for uh, American Urban Radio Networks, they both got into some direct confrontational situations with white men in power and the ways in which those men responded, being Bill O'Reilly and Sean Spicer, really set social media ablaze. And so I'm curious just... What went through your mind, I think, either when you saw those videos, the way in which Mr. O'Reilly diminished uh, Representative Waters' comments, 
uh, to her physical appearance or the ways in which April Ryan, who is an outstanding um, news and media personality, for her to be sitting in the White House briefing room and for her to be told to be quiet by Mr. Spicer. Uh, what crossed your mind? Was there a sense of familiarity there? Like, I've been in that seat before. Was there outrage? Was there a need to defend her? So I watch April every day during Sean Spicer's press conference. And every day I see April ask questions that other journalists aren't asking. She's asking questions that pertain to black and brown peoples as it relates to this administration. And that day when I saw Sean basically um, kind of patronize her and and tell her what to do with her body in terms of stop shaking your head, April. Why are you doing this, April? Um, I immediately was reminded of what it was like being a black journalist, journalism student in Northwestern and how my white male peers perceived my skill level as less than or even felt a sense of dominance over me. So as Sean's in the podium, he's in the seat of power. He has the ability to shut questions down or elevate other journalists and ask them ask them to ask their questions, basically. Like Sean basically is in control. In that moment of April doing her job, asking the questions she's supposed to be asking, asking in, in a way that's actually professional and to see Sean respond in such a belligerent and even unprofessional manner um, gave me a sense of anger and frustration that she shouldn't have to deal with this at work. She's doing her job. And she handled herself with such grace in a situation where she could have snapped or popped off, but she didn't because she's a professional. And the reality that regardless whether or not she popped off and said what she was really thinking or didn't, like either way, she's going to be painted as the villain. Um, and that's a tension I think that black women live in at work is when to pop off, when to say something, when to speak up, or when to just swallow our thoughts and just let it go and shake our heads because this is a mess. Yeah, it's funny because I, sometimes I feel like, especially in Christian spaces, we are expected to be extra holy. Um, and aren't able to fully uh, engage in the way that we are feeling or that we are thinking. Um, and that anytime we actually do express ourselves in the way that we're feeling or that we're thinking, it feels too over the top. Or people's feelings get hurt uh, because we are simply expressing ourselves or we're not expressing ourselves in the way that people would like for us to handle the situation. And so I think similarly, I was like, how is she like, she could play the, like, she's playing the game, she's doing what she's supposed to be doing, and then even when she um, is, like, verbally accosted in this way, because I do think that we need to recognize the violence that is happening when those things mm -hmm. uh, play out, right, um, that she still has to respond with such grace and with such poise. Uh, and so it's interesting of, yes, we are seeking to be like Jesus, but... Black women are, we don't have this like extra holiness, right? But there's like this, because of the things that we go through, we, it feels that like we're expected even to be more holy, more gracious, more humble, and to not be able to speak from what we're really feeling, what we're really thinking to protect the feelings and fragility of other people. It feels like if her shaking her head is frustrating for him, then what happens if she opens her mouth? Um, so I think there's this piece where the nonverbal cues that she's giving seem as though they are violent to him when mm. that's just not true that's that's inherently untrue and so i think for me as a black woman i have to be aware of how people not only perceive my physical appearance um, but my words because if people can't handle me going hmm then when i say something directly that's going to come out very differently um so often as a black woman at work uh in in christian spaces especially where niceness is a value mm. uh i often find myself 
asking things in the form of a question that I certainly already know are true um, to soften my own words so that people can receive them. Uh, because I have to ask the question, do I actually want to help move this conversation forward and have my voice be heard? And if I say those things that I want to speak directly, then most of the time they will be seen as aggressive, uh, condescending, frustrating for people. And if I want to see things move forward, I have to, I have to code switch to make that happen. I love what you point out, Brandy, in terms of our self-policing of our own bodies, our own mannerisms, because that is something we've had to do since we got on this continent. I literally have to be mindful of my every move because literally my life is at stake. Like I don't have the, the privilege of being my full self because in this space, my full self is seen as criminal. Um, so it just reminds me of how our ancestors, like literally in their work, in their labor, slave labor, had to constantly police themselves to keep themselves safe physically. Uh, and how we, several generations after that, are still living with that mentality that I have to remain as respectable as possible so as not to uh, raise red flags. Um, not to say that you were talking about respectability mentalities, but this kind of reminded me of that. Like we are constantly having to police ourselves because should a white person in power read our actions wrongly, our lives and now our jobs are at stake. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, I can. It's um, enjoying listening to you all. I think as I listen to you and I think about the ways in which Mr. Spicer and the way in which Bill O'Reilly responded to these women and the ways in which uh, with poise and with professionalism and with uh, an emotional calm that, in my opinion, did not warrant or did not match uh, the level of woundedness, I think that was afflicted upon these women professionally and publicly. Uh, I think it really reminded me of just this season that the African-American community has been in. Uh, you look at all of the unarmed shootings that have happened, even some of the armed shootings that have taken place, the deceased black bodies, I think from the last few years, since Trayvon, Trayvon Martin's name became a hashtag. And with every single occurrence, there's either been a vilification of these people in mainstream media or uh, as in the instance uh, with the shooting um, at the AME Church, right, there is a, an expectation that the African-American community will be quick to forgive, that we are not given space to be angry or space to mourn, uh, that we have to hurry up and move towards healing and forgiveness for the sake of this facade of peace or unity, if you will. And so for April and again for Miss, Miss Waters, who are outstanding in their professions, I think for them both to be uh, is experienced not even microaggressions. These were macro. These were public. They were big. They were visceral. They were personal. They were professionally offensive. I think for both of them to be on display in this manner, and for the media to downplay those situations, or for uh, the women to have to be forced to maintain their composure because they couldn't emotionally respond. Because if they emotionally respond, then it says that they're emotionally immature and can't handle the responsibility. And so. While they've been wounded, um, I think the, the actions, the inactions, the response, completely all eyes are on them. No one stepped up to Mr. Riley and said, this is unacceptable. Mr. O'Reilly said, this is unacceptable. No one stepped up to Mr. Spicer and said, this is unacceptable. They both said something that was offensive. And then the expectation was that the woman then had to clean it up or act in a certain way so that society could move forward. No one checked them in. Uh, and it reminds me of Adam and the garden in Genesis 3. Everybody throws Eve under the bus. But the Bible does say, and Adam was took some, and he was standing there next to his wife, and he didn't say anything at all. So, And I'm going to go back to being silent like Adam. So, yes. What do you guys think of Maxine Waters being reduced to her physical appearance? Because I think that's something that often happens with Black women in work. 
and in workspaces is our appearance becomes a battleground. Um, so what do you guys think about that? Like, yeah. As the person who currently has purple hair right now, <laughs> um, and uh, who kind of goes between uh, the beautiful versatility of a black woman's hair, mm -hmm. uh, which I appreciate and believe and know that is a gift from God. Um, I always have to think about what is my fro look like and how are people going to experience that when I come in? If I put this purple hair in, do people feel like they have the freedom to comment or what have you? Um, or touch. I'll say that too, because it's not just, we're not just talking about like white men here. We're talking about also other women who feel like they can touch you and um, uh, pet you, right? Uh, and I think that our appearances, um, it's as if they have some type of bearing on our ability to do our job well. And it's as if I walk into the room and what I am wearing, what I look like, what my hair, and this, this can be true for women across the board in some ways, right? I think we have some, some added nuances to that, um, is going to affect your ability to listen to what I have to say um, and to actually care about what I have to say, to believe what I have to say, for it to have validity um, simply because of what I look like, which is what happened to Auntie Maxine, right? Um, is that he completely dismissed what was coming out of her mouth and felt the need to comment on her appearance. And that goes back to what you're saying, Jerrica, is that um, there has always been uh, some type of possession um, of the black female body, right? Whether it is a physical possession of our bodies or you feel that you have the right um, and some type of, 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 of ability and ownership to be able to speak into our bodies, how we carry ourselves, how we look, for us to have permission to be in your space and at your table. I think on that level, there's also, um, there's also the other side, which is uh, when people try to act in professional spaces like they're down for the cause um, or like for my life. Uh, so I will wear a Black Lives Matter shirt and oftentimes in my predominantly white city and in the spaces that I occupy, people will walk up to me and say things like, I like your shirt. And I'm like, well, are you fighting for my dignity and for my life? Um, and if that's not the case, then don't say anything to me about my clothing because all you're trying to do is create a space where you feel better that you're down and that you're liberal or woke enough to be in my space or to act like you're on my side. Um, but I have no evidence for that except for you saying, I like your shirt. So I think there's another way that our physical appearance uh, invites a certain type of liberalism to come forward and falsely identify itself with the struggle when it is not present at all. That's good. Especially now that we live in an age where young black millennials are currency with, with commercial interests. So you put a girl throw in a commercial, all of a sudden you can sell some cereal, you can sell some yogurt. Um, like now it's like, so in so commercial spaces, my hair is cool. But in workplaces, my hair is uncouth. And how do you make sense of that? So, yeah, that's frustrating. It's really frustrating because every day you're having, once again, police yourself. You're having to monitor yourself. Oh, like Jazzy said, like, oh, is my hair going to be okay for this? Like, Jazzy, you speak at conferences. Have you ever gone to a space and like, oh, is my hair okay to, to teach on this stage? Like, or like, it's so interesting how we're constantly having to be aware of ourselves. And we can't live as fully free human beings because we have to, well, not have to, we could choose not to, but the reality is there's a cost. Yes. Like there's a cost to how we choose to exist and live and work in some spaces. 
You know, Jerrica, I feel like some of the things you're bringing up, um, it reminds me that sometimes being a Black woman at work, I feel like there are constantly questions that I have to ask myself that I know that my white male peers are not asking, that my white female peers are not having to ask themselves, right? So even the question of how will my hair and the appearance of my hair affect people's ability to listen to me um, or when I speak, right, um, students' respect for me. Um, is a question that I know that a lot of my white peers or even peers of other, other folks of color aren't necessarily asking um, at the same time, right? And that goes beyond appearance, right? Um, that goes into the way that I talk and the vernacular that I choose to use in certain spaces, right? Um, the policing that you've been talking about, right? The policing is something that is very unique, uh, I believe, uh, the level to, of policing to the Black woman experience in professional settings. Um, you guys have shared a lot about, um, I think, probably some of the Black-white dynamics. I'm curious, how have you experienced Black women at work? Uh, and I think, Jesse, you alluded to it a little bit. How have you experienced, I think, some of the strengths, some of the positives, but then also some of the pitfalls and challenges of being Black women at work uh, as you interact with other ethnic groups? Um, I think as I, as I consider my own experience, I have a very particular experience um, when it comes to working in uh, evangelical spaces is that I am like the quote unquote justice person, right? Um, and I think that's another aspect of this whole black woman at work that I wanna share that I think happens to a lot of women of color period in these spaces. I think it happens with our Latina sisters uh, as well and some of our Asian American sisters is as women of color, you are now like you're clear to talk about race, and like multi-ethnicity and like justice. Mm. But you come over here and you start messing with these other parts of our theology. Uh, what is, do, we don't know how to receive you on that. Um, so I, that's saying it with more of a negative tone, but I, I'll say the, the positive of that is, um, you know, I direct this program, an urban program, and there has been like, there have been such beautiful moments, uh, particularly I think of, Asian American students um, who experience this freedom um, from a woman of color, from the front, a black woman, uh, saying to them, right, that like you, like your experience is significant and we need your voice. Um, and there's something just like really beautiful about that connection of our experience to one another, Black to Asian, um, is that for Asian Americans who have been kind of um, pushed into this liminal, liminal prison, right, this like in between um, Blackness and whiteness and are only um, seen as valuable in their proximity to one or the other, to hear from a Black woman who maybe they're not used to hearing from of like, I need your voice. Uh, and I want to hear your voice in it, and we all need it for the sake of the kingdom of God. Uh, it's just there's something that is freeing in it for them. And there's a lot of dynamics that we could probably go into about our parallel histories and uh, things around that. But I think I've particularly with Asian American students and Asian American staff, um, and me being myself as a Black woman and leading, right, um, it has given them permission to seek to be themselves. Um, and to find their own voices, particularly in Christian spaces. And I think for Latinx folks, um, there has been at least a little bit of hopefulness that can come of, uh, which this is sad, right? Of like, oh, seeing black voices up there, like 
well, we also get our turn too, right? Um, and I've, I've cried and prayed with sisters around that. Um, but I think that there's, there's still a little hopefulness that can come when they recognize uh, what has been the plight of Black women in these spaces to also look at what has been the plight and pain of Latinas, right, who are often rendered invisible or who are, who are also like kind of typecasted and placed into a certain role that they have to play um, in the body of Christ, right? I think for the sake of time, what would you say to these up and coming black women who are college students that will be with black women at work one day? And for everyone who is not black listening on this podcast saying, I had no idea, or I wanna make sure that never happens where I am. Uh, would you mind giving some final thoughts to both of those audiences? Brandy? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I think one of the most important things for me in being a Black woman at work has been finding mentors and friends to commiserate with. Uh, I think there is something about having cathartic spaces just to be like, this is a problematic thing that happened. Uh, how should I be thinking about this? Or I just feel super frustrated or mad about this thing. Can you talk me through that? Um, and I found that, uh, back to our earlier question, like that some of my greatest mentors and friends have been other women of color, um, Asian American, Asian and Latinx folks. And so it just feels like there's this opportunity in mentorship to stay functional. Um, I think I would have um, gotten to a pretty bad place in the last three years if it hadn't been for mentors in my life um, and friends. And so I know for some folks that those spaces, particularly coming from the Pacific Northwest, aren't uh, super available, that there aren't like just cornucopias of black women hanging out to be mentored by. Um, so things like social media can be your best friend. Um, spaces like Twitter, um, where folks are having the conversations and the experiences that we're currently having um, have been really, really helpful for me in this period of time. I wanna uh, speak to the non-black women folks. <laughs> um, and, and kind of like reiterate um, the reality that like this being a black woman woman at work, uh, particularly in ministry, um, this comes at such a high cost. <laughs> and um, I don't know if there's a recognition of the cost um, and the fatigue and the uh, reinforcement of trauma. And um, there is a level to which often when we are invited into space, even the well-meaning spaces, uh, to share of our experiences, um, we are just opening and reopening and reopening wounds uh, that we continue to have and we are bleeding out. And what happens is we have those conversations, those listening sessions, those town halls, and then we walk away still bleeding out and everyone is unscathed, right? Um, we walk away still carrying the heavy burdens that we walked into the room with, and we are told a message that people want to carry it with us, um, but then we still walk out with the full, like, brunt of it, and people put it down after we have those moments. And we need people who will continue to, like, who will take the burden and carry it uh, for us. Um, sometimes that means losing power, Sometimes that means losing money. Um, that often means being uncomfortable. That often means meaning to needing to uh, check uh, yourself. And if I'm feeling fragile in this moment, what is it hitting up against? Right? Is it my 
ego? Um, is it my internalized patriarchy, um, which is for men and for women, right? But there is a lot of work that we as Black women have to do. And then to be asked the question of like, oh, like, you know, maybe we can, do we have to talk about this in every meeting, right? Do we have to bring this up all the time? The reality is like, we always see through those lenses and we need you to put on some new glasses so that you can see through those lenses too. Mm. It is a part of, I believe, seeking the kingdom is that you seek to see from their lenses, right? Um, so that you can shift the space. The first thing I thought of is like, you need to slay at work. Um, mm. And not because we live by some respectability politics that says we have to be the best to excel, um, but because of Ephesians 2, which says, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So we are God's handiwork. Like black woman of God, you are God's handiwork. He fashioned you. He made you, all of you. So go to work, like slay, like do you, do your best. Like literally do the work that God has prepared for you to do and know that no weapon formed against you shall prosper. Like no lying tongue, no vicious supervisor, no colorblind, clueless coworker can stop you from doing the work that God has prepared for you to do. So go get it. Like slay, April Ryan got a new job. She is CNN now. Maxine Waters is trending. Like they're going to work. So you can too. I'm grateful for all of you all. And, uh, I hope that every single person that is listening takes this seriously. Um, we will not be all that we need to be as a society until black women are all that they need to be. And your voices are needed, they are welcomed, and uh, there is a seat for you at the multi the table, and not just a voice, but one of equity and power to do the work of justice. Voices from the Margins is presented by Ministry in Digital Spaces, a ministry of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. For more information on MDS, joining our team, or becoming a ministry partner, log on to digital.intervarsity.org.